Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we are joined by Daniel Hatcher. Daniel is the author of The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens, uh, published in 2016 by NYU Press. Daniel, welcome. Uh, Hello, Stephen. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. So before we turn our attention to talking about the book itself, before we talk about the poverty industry, I wonder if you might say a little bit about your own uh, your relevant professional experience and background, maybe the kinds of problems that interest you, uh, and then perhaps sort of how you arrived at this particular project. Sure. Well, I'm currently a law professor at the University of Baltimore, where I teach a variety of classes, including a a civil advocacy clinic where I um, have the chance to continue working with uh, low-income clients on a wide variety of issues. Um, And I try very hard to learn from the ground, so to speak, through my students and through um, our clients to help inform um, my advocacy and my scholarship. Um, I think much of my desire to work on these issues stems back to um, my early work as a legal aid lawyer. Um, My first job at legal aid in Maryland, this was about 20 years ago now, was representing foster children uh, in the Baltimore City system here. And and it was, uh, to be candid, overwhelming to me in terms of the the issues that the the children are going through, both before they came to care, while they're in foster care, the struggles when they're aging out of foster care, um, and the numbers. You know, my caseloads, I represented, I think, my first day in court, um, uh, 17 children in an afternoon. Um, so, you know, I, I, and then from there, I represented adults and, and, and about every poverty law related issue you can think of on the civil side of, of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, early on, I, I started experiencing the, the, the many difficult circumstances that, that low income children, that low income families and adults go through, um, the injustices, the inequalities, um, and then what struck me even more is, is when I started to encounter ways in which the systems, the agencies that exist to serve these vulnerable populations are sometimes putting their own self-interest above their beneficiaries, right? You know, so that, that created deep concern for me. And, and that's really driven, I think, much of my advocacy and, and, and is Um, rooted in much of my scholarship over the years where I've been looking at ways in which um, state and agency purpose is in conflict um, with their own self-interest and is causing harm. So that sounds like sort of the perfect segue. So so, uh, talk a little bit. What do you mean by the poverty industry? And then we'll sort of bore down into the ways in which this plays out on the ground. Sure. So, so with the poverty industry, you know, maybe if you step back for 
first of what we normally think of as an industry would be a grouping of companies providing a similar service or product. And mm-hmm. I use an example of the coal mining industry with, with the poverty industry, you actually have private companies working in this field, poverty related funds and programs and services partnering um, with states and state agencies, right? So the poverty industry includes both the states, the state agencies and the private contractors all working around this flow of funds intended to provide um, assistance to vulnerable populations. Um, and, you know, almost like what you have the coal mining industry, you know, mining core, mining um, you know, ore for, for coal, with the poverty industry, literally you see practices that feels like, looks like, sounds like mining vulnerable populations, children and the poor for revenue rather than serving their best interests. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we, so there, there, you talk about the way that this plays out across a number of different, uh, domains, uh, in general, we've got sort of the, the, the foster care system, child support payments, nursing homes, and Medicaid as a couple of broad categories. Um, I wonder if we can maybe work our way through each of those and have you talk a little bit about how this works, how's this function, where is the money coming from, who's gathering it, what are they doing with it, uh, and then maybe uh, some attention to sort of the extent to which this is legal or not. So maybe, uh, should we start with foster care? Sure, that that, that would be great. That was the initial example that I encountered and it's probably what stayed with me the most in terms of what what seems like the most stark example of of these practices so um, the practice I discussed regarding foster children you you literally have state agencies often partnering with private companies to help that are taking resources from children in their care and diverting the children's funds to general state revenue and, and private profit so the way this is happening, I can use Maryland as an example, mm-hmm. where I sent out several state FOIA requests um, seeking contract documents regarding these practices. Yeah, Freedom of Information and, Act requests for those who may not know. Right. Sorry. Sorry. So, so public records requests. Yeah. Um, Maryland um, has a contract with a company by the name of Maximus. And um, initially, Maximus was doing an assessment for Maryland to determine how many um, Social Security disability and survivor benefits the agency, the the state human service agency, might be able to obtain from foster children and state care. Um, The uh, initial assessment report from Maximus actually describes foster children as a revenue-generating mechanism, right? You know, so it's not about how to best serve the children. It's all about the money. Um, But the practice, what's happening is is the state agency, um, uh, with the assistance of a contractor, now Maximus now has a contract statewide in Maryland, um, is seeking to uh, um, maximize the number of children who are determined disabled in foster care um, in order to to claim and then take um, their resulting disability benefits. Um, the current numbers at the time the contract was uh, um, being initiated was somewhere around 4% of the population as, as determined disabled for being eligible for Social Security disability SSI benefits mm-hmm. for children. Um, the goal in the contract documents indicated a goal of increasing that percentage upwards to 20% of, of the foster care population. Not to provide, and this is from the state, you know, 
goal not to provide any additional benefits or services related to those disabilities at all for the children, but the state rather simply takes those funds and it ends up in savings to the state general fund. So it goes to general state revenue rather than to helping the foster children. Um, same thing happens with survivor benefits. Um, and there, you know, the, the Social Security survivor benefits, the child is eligible if the parent worked, paid into the system and earned those um, benefits. The state also seeks out children who have dead parents in order to take their survivor benefits. Um, also, Maryland, other states will even take more. Ma- Maryland enacted a regulation where it will even take pretty much everything from, from children in their care, at least giving them authority to do so, taking earnings, savings, insurance, you name it. Um, uh, Maryland and, and many other states will even take veterans assistance benefits from foster children in their care if the parents died in the military. Um, I found an example out of Nebraska. Uh, the state will take even more for, from foster children in their care, they, they, even listing um, burial plots as an example, if the child happens to have that as an, as an asset. So obviously like once I encountered these practices and started digging into it as deeply concerned that, you know, these foster care agencies, that sole reason for existing is to protect and serve the best interests of foster children is actually taking resources from them. And I've heard arguments uh, repeatedly from the agencies that, well, the agencies are underfunded um, and they are, the, which they uh, are, yeah. Foster care agencies need more funds to provide better care, but it's nonsensical at best for a foster care agency to take funds from the very children that they exist to protect and serve to start with. And second, even when the agencies are doing this, when the foster care agencies, when human service agencies around the country, this is a nationwide practice, unfortunately, are taking resources from children in their care like this. It's not leading to more resources for the foster care agencies, rather it's replacing state spending, right? So it leads to state savings, to general fund savings, more money for the state general fund, rather than actually more resources to provide care to foster children. Wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't some of those states tell you that, that in the absence of this revenue coming into the state foster care agencies, um, that, that sort of going back into the general fund, that eases some of the budget pressure. So arguably, right, there, there, there is, in fact, more money coming in and being devoted to those children. Is, is that argument persuasive at all to you? I have heard, and, and you're breaking up just a little, I hope I'm clear. Um, I, I have heard um, arguments from various agency officials, both in, and seen them in pleadings. You know, I, I was involved in litigation here in Maryland on these issues. Um, where they do, you know, make arguments. I actually, like the, the, the secretary of the Human Services Agency in Maryland, I saw him testify, you know, a couple of years um, back saying almost threatening that if they, the agency could no longer take these foster children's funds, that the agency would reduce services to other foster children. Right. right? Legally, that is and, and factually, that is incorrect. Um, the states and state human service agencies are required both under state law and federal law to provide these services for foster children. And they're required to pay for those services as well. So if Maryland, for example, if the, if the uh, state human service agency here in Maryland 
were to stop taking children's funds or to, or to, or to help claim funds on behalf of foster children and actually use them to help those individual children as intended, it would res- not result in less funding to the agency because the state is legally obligated to provide those funds for the foster care services. Right. And that legal obligation obviously isn't going to fluctuate either way. So, so that winds up being rationale for, for plugging budget holes without having to cut spending in other areas that people may be paying more attention to or raising taxes in one way or another. Right. I, I think that's a good point because I, I think the reason this and the other practices that I describe in the book, I think largely one of the reasons this is occurring, these practices that are occurring is that, you know, the agencies are cash strapped, states are cash strapped. States are, un- and these are red states and blue states alike, unwilling to raise sufficient revenue through general taxation. So they've been looking for money elsewhere, anywhere they can get it. We've reached a point where foster care agencies are even, even taking money from kids and their care. Right. And they don't even when they do this practice, they don't uh, across the country, Maryland, we've had a, a minor success to improve this notice requirement. But in other states, they don't even notify the children. They don't notify the children's advocates that they're applying for the benefits that the state is applying to become representative payee to take over control of the funds. And they don't provide any notice of how they're using the money. And these are the children's funds. It's it's. It's a horrific practice. And now, is that possible? I know that that you point to some instances in some states in which uh, the 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 foster care agency, which is serving as legal guardian of the child, uh, ultimately winds up having to notify itself of of those kinds of particular actions, so that there's nobody else who needs to be engaged legally in making that determination. Is is, is my understanding that correctly? That that plays out that way. Right. And, you know, it's crazy. And this is I've seen the agencies argue this and, and you know, multiple um, cases where, where they'll say, you know, look, all we're required to do is notify the guardian. We're the guardian. Right. You know, so, so we're applying to become representative payee. So we're going to notify ourselves that we're applying to become representative payee. And that's sufficient. Um, the we challenged that um, in Maryland. Um, and um, I was involved as as counsel for a group of advocates that signed on as uh, amici, friends of the court, mm-hmm. um, in support of a, um, of a foster child who challenges practice. Um, Maryland Legal Aid Bureau was, was the attorneys for the, for the child. And that went up on appeal to, the, to Maryland's top appellate court. And the court did find that actually that the state and the agency was violating foster children's due process, constitutional due process rights by not providing any notice. So hopefully that's now in the process of being fixed in Maryland, but the, the lack of notice is still happening in other states across the country. Right. And was that, um, to the best of your knowledge, was that decision in, in Maryland uh, based on uh, a reason that could readily be applied in other states or was it Maryland uh, statutorily or constitution specific? It could absolutely be applied in other states. It's um, uh, based on uh, constitutional due process and the practices that are happening under a federal regulatory scheme and the very similar practices that are being carried out by state agencies all around the country. Terrific. Well, that's at least arguably a, a bit of potentially good news down the road at any rate. I hope so. Um, so, uh, should we turn our attention, talk a little bit about, about a related, but different issue. And that's the diversion of child support payments. 
Sure. And, and, you know, this could be impacting the same foster care child. Um, you know, if you think about like a child kind of stepping through these different schemes that could be occurring. Um, and maybe I can describe that at first, you know, sure. much, much of what we call child support and the back of child support amounts, the national arrearages um, that we have for child, for child support um, are not actually owed to children or their families. Um, estimates of between a third to half of the total national child support debt, um, the arrearages, are actually owed to the government um, rather than the children um, and their families. And the reason this happens is that both through a, through a framework of federal and state law, the agencies um, require the initiation of child support orders um, and when it's foster care um, against potentially both parents. And then the state takes any child support payments from the children to pay back um, the state, the state and the federal government for the cost of those foster care services. Right. So, again, you could have a child in foster care where the state is actively seeking out and taking the child survivor benefits or Social Security disability benefits, maybe other resources, while they're also pursuing child support that they're taking from the child. Um, I've seen evidence in Maryland and an indication in other states that states aren't tracking this. So they could very easily be double dipping, if you will, you know, paying themselves back more than once, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the cost of care. Um, and it, that just if you stop and consider the foster care impact, what that does is it layers on an additional financial debt onto low income parents. K- kids come into foster care from poor families, almost always. Um, Most of the cases of children in foster care are due to neglect, um, not abuse. I'm not saying that there aren't abuse cases, and those are obviously concerning, um, but most of the children end up in foster care due to neglect, and most neglect is a result of poverty-related circumstances. And the initial effort when a child comes into foster care is reunification to try to provide services to the family, to the parents, a parent or both parents, depending on the circumstance. So there could be reunification with the family. But then if you pursue a state owed debt that they call child support, but it's not going to support the kids. um, And upon a low income family where they're struggling to get back on their feet again, that's going to harm everybody involved. Um, And I've seen like the numbers I've done in my research, um, trying to look at the financial data um, I think it's very likely that states are spending more in enforcement for the state-owed child support enforcement than they're actually collecting. So even if you step apart from the harm that it causes to the children and families, um, the state is also harmed financially because they're spending more than they're collecting, let alone all the other harm that they're causing to these children you know, down the road. That also occurs in you know, what I call the welfare policy, um, which is our temporary aid for needy families program, yeah. TANF, used, used to be um, AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. If a low-income custodial parent applies for welfare assistance, I'll say she, because it's usually the mom, but not always, yeah. as the custodial parent, um, she's required to initiate a child support obligation against the father. And usually when mom's poor, dad's usually poor too. Again, for money that um, won't go to help the children. The money is then um, taken. It's assigned to the state, again, to repay costs of the benefits provided. 
Um, and that's causing uh, severe harm across the country as well, both with potentially taking this resource from children if it was there as a potential resource. Also, there, there's a good amount of studies um, over the years that look at, look at what have been called fragile families and that look at the potential for a healthy relationship between the low-income mothers and fathers, young low-income mothers and fathers when a child is born um, out of wedlock. Um, and there's good potential, you know, according to the studies that the moms, you know, want the, the, the custodial parents want the absent parents to be involved. The non-custodial parents want to do their best um, to provide help and supporting the children. There's potential for um, sometimes the relationships to come together, if not in a, um, cohabitation, at least in healthy co-parenting. But when you force poor mom to sue poor dad for money that isn't going to help the child, and again, the state usually can't collect because the parents are poor, right, it right. harms everyone involved. And it causes deep harm, and that becomes connected to the criminal justice system for low-income fathers who are have these obligations of unpaid thousands upon thousands of unpaid state-owed child support debts, and their license are suspended. It increases the likelihood that they'll work, they will work in the underground economy, yeah. right, which can cause an increase in, in criminal activity. So the, the, the harm just, it's, it's a domino effect in terms of the harm that's being caused by these practices. So, so I mean, you've, you've highlighted, highlighted sort of irrationality here on, I've lost track of how many different levels in the ways in which this functions in the real world. I mean, is it, is this, is this incompetence and ignorance or is this malice? I mean, why, why does this, why, why is this happening in this particular kind of way? I think that's a great question. It's a hard question. You know, um, let me start like one point I, I like to make because yeah. like, in the book, I, I'm critical of human service agency practices, right? And when, and when they are diverting resources from intended purpose um, like this. Um, but I think the vast majority of frontline caseworkers want to do good work for their clients and they're often underpaid themselves and underappreciated and, and overworked they have huge caseloads. Yeah. So it's happening much higher up, you know, in terms of when these practices, these revenue schemes are occurring. Um, I think our, our agencies or states, they've lost their way. They've lost sight of the purpose, right? And mission matters. You know, if you have a, you know, even our state, if you start at the state level, the state government exists to maximize welfare for our citizenry. It doesn't exist to maximize its own revenue, right? And when those two tensions come into head, if the state places more focus on revenue maximization over maximizing the, the public good, harm will result. And you're seeing that happen with foster care agencies and other agencies yeah. that are um, involved. Um, so I don't think it's ignorance. I think they know what they're doing. I think they've lost sight of what their core mission is. And, and again, mission matters. And, and presumably, um, given the fact that we are talking about poor and low-income people Almost by definition, in both of these instances, um, not folks who have a lot by way of political resources or influence in the process. So these become uh, this is exploitation that you can get away with because you're not likely to face too much by way of pushback, except for uh, underfunded legal aid lawyers who have cases who are that are too large to keep up with to begin with. Right. You know, many, many of these vulnerable populations, you know, these individuals, these children and, and these low income adults, you know, aren't just now having to deal with these practices from 
um, the state agencies, but but it's just one barrier after another, after another, after another um, that they're encountering, including you know uh, these you know um, financial obligations. You know if they if they're in court for unpaid credit card debts, in terms of what happens there, court fees and fines. Every like everywhere they turn, there are more and more barriers put up against them. I'm amazed, and you know, when someone is is struggling in poverty, if, if that individual, if that family can truly make it out, it actually absolutely amazes me. You know, like personally, I don't think I could. You know, I you know if I if I grew up and and the circumstances of some of my clients that I've worked with, I don't think I'd be able to make it out. Yeah, and I think I mean I think that's I think. Most people who don't do this kind of work are not necessarily aware of the sheer sheer weight of force that the state and government, federal government combined, the barriers that they enact uh, to, to poor and low income families to to not only make it difficult to escape those circumstances, but arguably radically increase the chances that they will remain in those states. But precisely because of some of the dynamics that you talked about, it becomes, you know, poverty winds up breeding poverty in these circumstances. And it's not a force of nature, but it is the, the, the power of government applied to them. Right. No, there are so many systemic barriers that, that are facing individuals. You know, we all have across the spectrum. We all, you know, ebb and flow in terms of our initiative. Right. You know, but for, for low income individuals, I mean, they have to be almost superhuman in, in order to be able to lift themselves out of poverty. And if we talk about foster children again, just briefly, you know, sure. foster children aging out of care. Yeah. Um, they face the stats are so lined up against these children after already what they've had to deal with in the broken foster care system. The numbers are alarming. You know, like um, I saw some statistics that, that by age 26 for former foster care men, I think upwards of like 75 percent um, had already been arrested. Right. Yeah. The, the number of foster children who end up homeless, who end up back on public assistance um, involved in the criminal justice system. Foster children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder at twice the level of Iraq war veterans. You know, you know these kids are struggling. And then when the systemic barriers are then yet even further in their way as they try to age out of the system, it's unfortunately no surprise that many aren't doing well. Yeah. And, you know, I try to stress another thing I try to stress in the book is that, you know, connectivity, we're all connected and not just from a philosophical sense. I mean, it impacts us when I when a child in West Baltimore is harmed and does worse when he or she ages out of the system, it harms all of us and not just morally or, or, or you know, from the heart, which is important to me, but financially, we all pay the cost um, when a former foster child struggles and doesn't do well when they age out of care. Yeah. Um, so why don't we, um, I want to turn our attention and talk about nursing homes for a little bit, and then we'll 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 conclude by focusing on Medicaid. Can you ask me that one more time? Oh, I'm so sorry. I said, can we? Why don't we turn our attention to nursing homes? Um, sure. Um, you know, so if we go to you know, often the the other end of the age spectrum, you know, and this is getting into um, um, uh, a category of revenue screens where I talk about um, Medicaid generally, but but nursing homes there are a wide variety of concerns. Maybe to start with, the overall lack of quality care in our nursing homes in our country. You know, it is alarming that you know in the United States, supposed to be a, a you know a wealthy country, 
that nursing home care for our older Americans is on average not in good shape, yeah. right? And Maryland, as an example, you know, where I live um, and teach and practice law um, is often, you know, it's been state by year by year, it varies, but we're often the richest state per capita. Maryland gets a D grade in nursing home quality of care under some um, of the various assessment reports. So nursing home care to start with is, is I think, call it horrific in many instances, mm-hmm. is not an overstatement. And, and I hope we as a country um, take notice of that. So these nursing homes, these poor performing nursing homes, are then often used in revenue schemes. Um, states will use the nursing homes as a means to maximize federal Medicaid funds. And then not all states, but many states, I found examples where I talk about in the book, will then unfortunately divert those federal Medicaid funds away from Medicaid services, right? They're supposed to be used to provide Medicaid services to the nursing home residents for which they're claimed. We'll divert them instead to general state revenue or to other state use. Um, in the book, I talk about an example in, in Oregon, you know, where they're using nursing homes and an illusory Medicaid maximization scheme and then taking those federal Medicaid funds and using it to fund the public education system in Oregon. Now, you know, I'm a fan of public education, but that's not what the way the money is supposed to be used. You know, the state you know, Oregon is supposed to fund the education system through general taxation, through other means or through property taxes. However, it's going to fund the education system, not by taking federal Medicaid funds from nursing home residents, yep. right? You know, and there are many examples of that. I, um, I grew up in Indiana and, and I found an example in Indiana that I discussed in the book where it's a, a local example. Well, it's both local and statewide. Um, uh, the Health and Hospital Corporation in Indianapolis, which is a municipal agency, discovered that it could buy up for-profit nursing homes um, they would actually buy, you know, like the licenses, you know, um, for these nursing homes and then often hire the very same companies they bought the licenses from to keep running the nursing homes. But once they were considered to be government owned, they were able to, to trigger a higher federal Medicaid reimbursement rate. Yeah. Right. Um, that's supposed to be used for, again, Medicaid services for those nursing home residents. But rather um, the Health and Hospital Corporation of Indianapolis, this municipal agency, is taking all those funds or the vast majority of those funds and diverting it to build a new hospital system in Indianapolis. Now, at least that's a healthcare related purpose. <laughs> and, you know, that's not how the money is supposed to be used. It's supposed to be used. Medicaid funds claimed on behalf of nursing home residents are supposed to be used for those nursing home residents for Medicaid services. It's not complicated. Um, and, this municipal agency in Indianapolis, you know, and then who then diverted the funds to build a hospital system in Indianapolis, wasn't just buying up nursing homes close to Indianapolis where they're taking the money from. They're buying up for-profit nursing homes all around the state of Indiana, corner to corner, right, in which, in which they were doing this. Um, Indiana gets an F grade in terms of its nursing home quality of care, and it's often been in many um, different um, assessment markings been the worst in the country and like such as examples of staffing levels and the like so deep concerns in terms of what's happening to 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 our nursing home residents and and i mean as a general rule are these these practices are legal correct well 
I would argue no. Um, I, I think it's a hard question because there's some vagueness sometimes in the regulations and what the language is in the statute. Mm-hmm. But I think the purpose of the Medicaid statute could not be more clear, right? You know, like it's supposed to be developing a partnership. Um, um, uh, Medicaid is, a, as an example, what, what I call, or I call, many call fiscal federalism, mm-hmm. right? It's shared governance and financing between the states and the federal government. Um, if I use Maryland, for example, if Maryland spends $50 uh, of state money on Medicaid-eligible services, Maryland can then claim an additional $50 from the federal government in matching funds. And that's, so you're supposed to have $100 total then for Medicaid services. So the Medicaid statute, the Medicaid program exists for the purpose of enhancing the ability of states to provide um, medical care for low-income individuals matching state spending with federal spending. So when the states divert these funds from intended purposes, that is in direct conflict with the entire purpose of the Medicaid statute. Some of this, unfortunately, has been allowed to occur, you know, by um, our federal agencies, such as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. There have been times the agency has tried to crack down on the practices, and then sometimes the states will very quickly develop a new way of doing this. And some of it has to do with monitoring capacity, you know, simply like the ability to track how much the states are engaged in these practices and and following the money can be hard at times. So um, I think there are arguments that some of the practices are illegal. I think there are also examples where we definitely need to tighten up and make more explicit um, federal statutory and um, regulatory language. I think it's you know it's, it's when you when you talk to people about 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 fraud in social welfare programs or, or Medicaid fraud, um, this is I would wager not what comes to people's mind. Right, they think about individuals who are trying to scam the system and get benefits to to which they are not entitled, um, and such things do happen. But the research that we have available tells us that they don't happen an awful lot, and those those funds don't amount to too much. But the kinds of patterns that you are describing our are large scale activities undertaken by state governments, often in concert with large private corporations that are are beholden to those state governments, sometimes on both ends of the equation, right? That they are hired on the one hand with a contract to go out and maximize revenue and then hired by the federal government on the other hand to then uh, evaluate what's going on in those states. Can you talk about a little bit about the way in which that sort of piece of, of this profit-making enterprise plays out? Sure. And those are great points and great, great question. Um, I mean, this is enormous first in terms of the scale, unfortunately, you know, with, with the, with the foster care revenue schemes I discussed about regarding social security benefits that are being taken from children. um, The, the estimate, the only really estimate I've seen in terms of the national amount that's happening is from the congressional research service, estimated around $250 million, a quarter of a billion dollars each year that are being uh, diverted, taken from, from foster children yeah. in the country. So that's an alarming number to start. But, but for Medicaid, revenue maximization and divergence set strategies, we're talking billions um, that are being diverted from intended purpose. But you're absolutely right. You know, like most of the times when people think of fraud in the, in the federal aid programs, are thinking about individuals who are engaged in bad acts. And I use an example, you know, in the book, there is a case out of Westchester, New York, where um, a case, uh, criminal charges were brought against a um, social worker who had gained access to 
um, a, ch- a foster child's former foster child's savings. Um, this individual, this child's a biological parent had died, um, and then she was adopted, and then the adoptive mother unfortunately died of cancer. Right. And while the mother like is dying of cancer, apparently the social worker discovered, you know, that there were these savings of the survivor benefits that the child had had um, um, received from the from the biological parent, about sixteen thousand dollars. A social worker took the money. Right. You know, and, and she was criminally charged and there were, you know, you know, notices put out, press releases, you know, we're, we're going after the bad person, you know, in terms of doing this, the West, the county you know, is saying we're going after that. But meanwhile, that county, Westchester County, has been engaged in private contracts to take survivor benefits, not just from one foster child, but from all foster children who have survivor benefits who are in state care, who are in county care, and also the disability benefits. And there, you know, the, the county isn't just taking $16,000, taking tens of tens of tens of thousands of dollars from from foster children, but no one has been up in arms yet about those practices. Yeah. Um, and I, I like, there's an example I talk about, like there, there's, there have been sometimes false claims act claims brought um, uh, under some, uh, un, and like some of the claiming practices that occurs. Um, um, you know, one of the companies I discussed in the book, Maximus, there were false claims act brought against Maximus. And, and um, I think it's back in like 2006 or 2007, um, uh, regarding a contract with the District of Columbia, where the company was helping Washington, D.C. Um, to maximize Medicaid claims, a certain form of Medicaid claims on behalf of foster children. Mm-hmm. Um, there were False Claims Act proceedings brought, I believe criminal and civil, and the Department of Justice got involved. And um, Maximus agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement. You know, so the case settled agreed to pay back, you know, over $30 million um, for these claims um, where there was alleged Medicaid fraud um, that occurred. So after the settlement agreement, you know, within within just a short amount of time after the the settlement of alleged Medicaid fraud claims against Maximus, Maximus lands a contract with the state of New York to help run New York's statewide Medicaid fraud program, right? You know, (laughs) and then a short time after that, Maximus, um, um, reups continues the contract with the District of Columbia for that very same contract for which it initially got into trouble. Um, within a short time after that, Maximus either renews or lands new contracts with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services (CMS) for um, over two hundred, three hundred million dollars worth of, of contracts. Um, and this is the federal agency to which the alleged fraudulent Medicaid claims had been submitted. Right. And then a short time after that, Maximus lands a contract with the Department of Justice itself, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice to help um, run the software to initiate and run the uh, criminal investigation software systems for the Department of Justice. I believe what the contract indicated Um, to play devil's advocate there for for a little bit. I mean, is 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 part of what's possibly going on there? And this goes this this went on in the, the early implementation of the Affordable Care Act and setting up the exchanges. It goes on in the Defense Department all the time that because of the nature of these contacts, contracts, it requires um, such specialized technology and skills and expertise and the ability to scale up that that it is simply there. There are a finite number of companies that we can turn to if we're going to outsize source this. Uh, so inevitably, even if 
Um, in a more charitable view, it still is. Maximus is going to have to wind up doing this work anyway. What do you make of that argument? Well, and, and I, I think that's a, a big and, and layered question, you know, and, and we could talk a long time about, like I say, just privatization generally within um, the world of, of poverty-related aid programs, you know, both at the state level and at the federal level. Yeah. And in the book, you know, I'm not really um, – um, going after privatization or assessing is privatization good or bad? You know, no, I have my own views on that. And most of the data and most of the examples that have come out have, have shown uh, time and time again that privatization um, causes more problems, is more costly, more inefficient than when it's done by the, the government in terms of when these programs are carried out. But, you know, I, I, I another point I try to stress, you know, like if, if you think about even the contracts like with Maximus that Maryland has where um, the company is helping Maryland maximize the number of claims and seek to obtain help the state obtain um, Social Security disability and survivor benefits from foster children. Um, it's the state who's deciding to take those funds from children. Right. It's, it's the governor's office who's deciding, you know what, after Maximus helps. Um, increased claims for these these benefits on behalf of foster children. It's the governor's office is saying we're going to take the money from kids, right? You know, Maryland could use this contract with Maximus to do some good for foster children, to do a lot of good for foster children. You know, for children who are disabled or have deceased parents to help get these needed federal aid benefits that could then actually that are entitlements. These are monies that belong to the foster children once they claim they're claimed. The children could then use their own funds, you know, those those Social Security disability and survivor benefits to help themselves, yeah. um, you know, including conserving the funds for their transition out of foster care. Um, but instead, the state is just taking the money and, and from kids and it's causing deep harm. Yeah. Um, so what do we do about it? Well, I mean, at the simplest level, you know, stop doing bad stuff, right? You know, like, <laughs> you know so, so, some, some of the solutions when you get down to the, the crux of it isn't really, aren't really complicated. Um, children's foster care, children's, um, foster children's funds should be used to help those foster children, right. right? You know, disability benefits for a foster child are supposed to be able to provide additional care and services for those child's needs related to the disabilities, you know, like in terms of their their needs. Um, child support is supposed to be used to support children, not supposed to be taken from children. Medicaid funds are supposed to be used for Medicaid services. So, you know, the, the crux of it is fairly simple. The hard thing is how do we get there? Right. Um, and I lay out in the book, you know, many different examples. There's a, there we can, like some of it can be through litigation, as we talked about earlier regarding um, claims that can be brought against state human service agencies or the foster care agencies when they're, when they're obtaining monies, monies from children. Legislation is possible. Um, I've worked on both legislation here in Maryland at the state level and at the federal level. And there's, there's been um, a bill introduced um, not too long ago by a congressman out of Illinois, um, Danny Davis, that would protect foster children's resources and prevent those practices where the states are taking children's Social Security disability and survivor benefits. And then those funds would actually be conserved for the foster children and what are now called 529A plans. These are plans much like college savings account 529 plans, but there's a new, relatively new account that's available for disabled 
children who receive Social Security disability benefits, they can be conserved in what are called 529A plans that have the same tax benefit um, as the college savings plans but can actually be used for much expanded reasons, including college or or just about any need for the disabled child related to the disability, including working towards becoming independent, right? And they're also, they would be exempt from various asset limits that can apply to the SSI benefit. So it's it's a wonderful fit. It's there right now that's available where where foster children's funds can be conserved in these plans. We just have to stop the states from taking their money, you know, um, I mean, that gets back to the sort of the big unfair question. How do we get, I mean, it, it, it is not in state's financial interest to do that at the moment, right? There's a, a source of revenue that they can use to, to plug gaps in the budget and avoid all kinds of complicated political challenges by doing this without really facing too much by way of cost, if they can live with the sort of the, the, the moral and the ethical consequences. I mean, have you got any, any sort of insight other than, you know, sort of, uh, the, the slow grind of litigation and to force them into compliance as a way to, to, uh, to what, put pressure on, on states to at least uh, take the 529 option and, and enforce it? Uh, sure. You know, and I, I know this may sound a little vague, but I think the best way to apply pressure is through awareness. You know, awareness matters. And the mm-hmm. states have been able to do this across the country largely because people haven't known. You know, you know, they haven't notified you know, the children or their advocates. Most people have no idea that this is occurring across the country. And, and the vast majority of people, when I when I talk to them about these practices, they're disgusted yeah. by it. You know, you know, it's hard for a state agency official to defend these practices when they're actually talking about it, you know, like and, and they would rather not you know, <laughs> yeah. these practices. So awareness, you know, can be probably the best tool. So, so what you're doing now, you know, this show and bringing these, you know, to the, to the attention of the public, I think is a huge service. Um, and then, you know, litigation can be of assistance. There's legislative changes that can be done if um, the agencies won't stop this practice themselves. Um, and I have examples of, you know, model legislation. Um, and, um, you know, if anybody ever wants to discuss possible litigation strategies or legislation strategies, I, I would love to do that. Terrific. Um, you're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we've been talking with Daniel Hatcher, the author of The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. Um, so, Daniel, before we are getting to the end of our time here, so before we wrap up, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what, it, what, what a, anything else that you think we've sort of left unsaid about the book that you want to make sure uh, that you bring to our listeners' attention, and then B, if you could talk a little bit about what, what are you working on now, what are the things that, that you you either uh, in your professional or your academic capacity you're focusing on? Sure. Well, I guess I can say there's, you know, a couple of examples. I won't get into a lot of detail, but in the book where I also talk about like school-based Medicaid claims yep. are sometimes unfortunately being taken from literally being taken from poor disabled school children. New, New Jersey is doing this under the current administration. In New Jersey, the state requires school districts to participate with a revenue maximization contractor and then right in the, you know, the governor's budget documents, the state will take over 80 percent of the school based Medicaid claims from poor disabled school children instead of using it for general state revenue. Um, there's also many examples, you know, then it expands into what's happening where even the courts have gotten involved in the revenue generating schemes. Right. You know, in terms of fines and fees that are layered upon poor litigants. 
um, that, you know, $500 in fines and fees can quickly escalate into, you know, a, a few thousand. And then the courts will hire um, private collection agencies to get involved, which will layer more money in terms of their services on top of that. Um, and it just creates even more barriers in, in terms of um, even the return of what, of what have been determined called debtor's prison. People yep. liter- lit- litigants literally locked up for being poor, you know, and un- unable to port- pay the debts. In terms of what I'm going to work on going forward, um, I'm sort of figuring that as I go. You know, and what I realized with this book is every issue I started to dig into just unsurfaced more and more examples. Um, unfortunately, you know, where where, where I, I feel like I'm I've exposed a lot, you know, in the book, but but I've also on one level just just scratching the surface of examples in which um, the government agencies, um, whether it's a state level or local level. Um, have put their own financing above um, the best interests of either the vulnerable beneficiaries in the aid programs or to the citizen, citizenry as a whole. Yeah. So one of the things I thought about is maybe looking more at a, at a, sta- at a city level example um, to look at, you know, following the money and maybe taking following an individual through the various systems that are impacted um, by the city's application of the various systems that can impact an individual and then trying to follow the money in terms of how the, how the money is actually used within a city system. And I'm in a city in Baltimore where, where um, poverty, unfortunately, is um, a huge issue. Uh, and, you know, so it would be an interesting city to, to use as an example for that. Yeah. Um, fascinating and horrifying. Agree. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful um, that, you know, I, I, I do think change is possible. And I think with increased awareness that we can fix these systems, you know, I encounter a lot of bad practices out there. Um, but at the same time, I think it's possible, um, again, through increased awareness and through um, um, really trying to put more pressure on our government officials to, to be true to, you know, their purpose. I think most people want to do good stuff, right. You know, and it's just, they've lost their way. Yeah. Um, you know, I talk a lot about that, you know, I use the term vulnerable in the book frequently, but we're all vulnerable, right. You know, we're, and, and if we can get back to that simple um, point and remember that we're all vulnerable, we're all connected. You know, I know that sounds a little touchy feely, but, but, you know, that's important to remember that we're all in this together and when the government is is um, running a program that is harming a vulnerable population, it's harming all of us. Yeah, and we also we all have a stake if if you know sort of of, of funds that we sort of collectively through our elected representatives have decided to allocate for one particular kind of public purpose, and they are being misused and misallocated. That does a disservice to all of us. I mean, that's sort of a, a fundamental violation of of the compact that theoretically we make with each other. So I'm I'm right there with you and. Um, I, I, I appreciate the hopefulness. I think also that it's sort of important for you to um, the, that you talked about the ways in which when confronted with these kinds of contractual arrangements and these behaviors on the part of states, it is exceedingly difficult for officials to defend them out loud. And that part of what makes it possible for these practices to happen is that people don't know that they're happening. Right. I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, Thank you so much, Daniel. We've been talking with Daniel Hatcher. He's the author of The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens, published in 2016 by NYU Press. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. 
Thank you so much for this opportunity, Stephen.